Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. Welcome to today's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series with Dr. David Carmouche. David is both a good friend and a wonderful professional colleague and brings with him today over 22 years of progressive healthcare leadership to his current role at Oxner in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. As Senior Vice President of Community Care, he serves on the organization's senior management team and leads Oxner's value-based care delivery organization. This includes the adult primary care division of over 250 providers, Oxner's 17 urgent care centers, post-acute services, and most of the organization's population health programs. In the role, Dr. Carmouche leads the value-based contracting strategy with managed care organizations, employers, and with manufacturers. And as president of Oxner's Health Network, David leads a statewide clinically integrated network of over 35 hospitals and 2,700 physicians. His team is responsible for strategy, contracting, performance management, data and analytics, and financial performance of the network. David and his team have developed narrow network insurance products with Blue Cross Blue Shield Louisiana and Humana, and they recently entered into a network agreement with Walmart to provide integrated, coordinated, high-value care for its Louisiana employees. OHN also organizes a benefits purchasing collective for its hospital members, which includes medical and pharmacy benefits and ancillary insurance product benefits. Dr. Carmouche attended Tulane University and LSU Medical School in New Orleans, You are a New Orleans boy, born and bred and all the way through. He then completed his internal medicine residency at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where he later served as chief resident. He's board certified in internal medicine and practiced preventive cardiology at the Baton Rouge Clinic from 1997 to 2012. Dr. Carmouche has also completed the managed healthcare delivery executive education program at the Harvard Business School, as well as its strategy and healthcare program. He serves on the board of directors for the Louisiana Healthcare Quality Alliance and COS EHC, the Consortium for Southeastern Hypertensive Control. I am also very pleased today to welcome Bob Sachs, uh, our advisory board chair and former national director for learning at Kaiser Permanente. Uh, Bob is serving as guest podcast interviewer. And so without further ado, I'll leave it to you, Bob, to kick it off. Thanks, Tracy. So good to talk with you again, David. We've had the opportunity to do this before. This has got to be an an extraordinary time for you, and we really appreciate your taking the time to to talk with us today. You know, I think when I first got a chance to meet you, Tracy and I were working on our book from competition to collaboration. We interviewed you about the book, and it was very clear that you were one of the exemplars of the health leadership model that we think is so important to transforming health and delivering value to to the country. And we're hoping today that we can talk with you about how that ecosystem leadership approach has really supported the work that you're doing in response to the pandemic, COVID-19, with the additional component of all the things that are going on in the country today around social inequity, which certainly makes itself known in the health system. These two things have really come together 
COVID and inequity. You know, clearly COVID-19 has had a disproportionate impact on vulnerable populations, which includes those who are older, those with chronic conditions. And it has highlighted the importance of social factors and it has had a particularly disproportionate impact on people of color and particular African-Americans. So it's, it's quite an extraordinary time for ecosystem leadership. It really does say that this whole approach to looking at social determinants and working cross-sector has got to be part of the response. So given the context that I just set up, how has the mindset that you bring to things where you do look from an ecosystem perspective really impacted the way that you've chosen to respond and that you have responded to some of the problems that you are facing at the health system there in Louisiana? Yeah, well, thanks, Tracy and, and Bob. Good to see you again. Uh, obviously, this has been a crazy time, and, and but in some ways, really a capstone kind of course in many ways. And, and really, as, as this pandemic unfolded, I really didn't at any point understand exactly what I was dealing with it, the way that I do today, looking back over the last four or five months. And, and, and you know, when you're, when you're in a situation like we've been placed now, you know, your actions display elements of the leadership model that you two have so eloquently laid out in your book and in your teachings, but you don't think about it that way. I mean, I think here, this has been the, the case of needing to learn and act quickly, not being, uh, not having all of the information at your hand or knowing what the answer was going to be, or really dealing with an unprecedented crisis in terms of the scale and the severity and the speed, especially in New Orleans, where we're headquartered, you know, an early epicenter. So not only created a major stress in the organization, it was occurring at a time when we knew very little about the nature of, of the challenge. And so uh, this has taken a lot of of effort and a lot of leadership in every lesson that I've learned along the way. And then the, the help and support of a lot of colleagues uh, and, and tremendous workers to kind of to kind of get us to where we are today. I'll also just say that, it, you know, to your point, this pandemic for us is the largest healthcare system in Louisiana is occurring in the sickest state in the country. So, you know, again, we didn't know when we were getting into this, the, the disproportionate impact this was going to have on impoverished and, and poor and ethnic uh, and racial minorities. But it really has played out that way, certainly in, in Louisiana. And we very early on, were in a position to both notice that, but publish data on that. I, I think we probably published the first major, you know, academic article in the New England Journal, really my colleagues, Dr. Leo Sawani and Ebony Price Haywood about what we were seeing in New Orleans, 30% or so of our population is African-American, but 75% of our admissions were African-American and 70% of our deaths were African-American. What was interesting is that these patient populations, though white versus black in the hospital had the same chance of surviving or dying. So, so the mortality rate risk adjusted in the hospital was no different for whites versus black, but there were so many more African-Americans being impacted early on that it was, it, was, it was striking. So for me, this has been a real challenge on an operational front. It's been a challenge in, in, in really starting to understand these inequities, but in some ways it plays to my professional interest, which is in population health proactive health care, reducing barriers to access, improving the health of Louisiana. It's, it's just, it's really interesting that at our system kickoff meeting in, in January this year, we formally changed the name of Oxner Health System to Oxner Health. 
And it was really a small change in terms of words, but the, the signal was, hey, we're in every major market in Louisiana now. We're the biggest private employer in Louisiana. We're the biggest healthcare system in Louisiana. At what point do we own the health status of Louisiana? And, and I think we were signaling what we wanted to do. I'll just say, we can get into some of the, the things that were, were moving in my world. Suffice it to say, there were a ton of stakeholders, internal and external, that we had to, to think about. And then there was a lot of learning and rapid action and, and planning and measurement and reaction and course correcting along the way. And I think all of those things really encompass many of the elements of the Helm leadership model that you, you two speak so eloquently of. Mm-hmm. So, David, maybe you could tell us a little bit about one or two things that you've tried to move forward to respond to this that leverage this health ecosystem mindset that you have and as symbolized even by the influence Oxner now has changed its name from healthcare to health. So, you know, maybe you could give us an example or two of some of the things you've done and then we could take a look at how you approach those, who you had to engage and work through the issues that that you faced. So what I'll talk about initially is just maintaining connection to patients in in a time when our clinics were closed, right? So the ultimate, you know, the historical legacy delivery model of of Oxford and most other health systems is a bricks and mortar focused delivery system where people need to get to you. And, And here we were in a situation where we couldn't see people outside of the hospital and, and so that created an enormous challenge to keep people who we are responsible for healthy, keep them you know, maintaining their blood pressure control, their diabetes control, making sure they have access to drugs. And fortunately, we've been thinking about this, not because of a pandemic in, you know, coming, but because of, of being a rural state, there being access challenges, the delivery model, the traditionally delivery model being too expensive for many, many folks. And so the, the notion of telemedicine to extend our our care model, the notion of digital medicine programs where we actually use patient wearables and uh, biometrics that are delivered from the home into the cloud and into a, an environment where a PharmD and a set of health coaches can interact with patients to manage chronic conditions. Those things were in place and were being built and scaled. And, and thankfully, we were able to turn them up fairly quickly and in this situation, specifically telemedicine. I mean, I think that's not news. Certainly other organizations have seen the same thing. It's, it's interesting. I, I've been surprised at how slow telemedicine has taken off in this country. And, and as I look at it today, this forcing function really, you know, obviously created the burning platform for this to, to happen. It was the only way providers could, could see their patients in many, in many ways. It turns out that the barriers were as much on our side as providers as they were on patients. I think we talked a long time about whether payment policy was to blame or whether the consumer need was to to blame. And in many ways, our own beliefs as physicians was really to blame. I think there was a bias amongst most of our physicians that virtual care was a layer of care below standard care. It was a substandard way to take care of patients. And I think one of the, the ahas to most of our providers is what an incredible channel it is for delivering cognitive services to patients who now don't have to get transportation, who don't have to have a family member take off work to bring them to an office. And then the positive feedback and the ability to both diagnose and counsel, but then to get the feedback from patients as to how much they appreciate it has been really the eye opener. And although you know our telemedicine rates have come down from the peak of the pandemic, 
They were probably representing about 1% of our total primary care visits before COVID. And right now they're about 22% of our visits. And in four months, we had to train about 300 providers in my area, about 200 physicians, about 100 uh, APPs on telemedicine capabilities. And, and, and then, you know, literally overnight, have them start seeing 15, 18 patients a day via that model. And it's worked out beautifully and it'll become part of our model in the future. Mm-hmm. So what was it that allowed that to happen? Well, you could say a burning platform, sure, but there was also vision for what we were going to need to be able to deliver in Louisiana before that. And so the building blocks of telemedicine from a technology standpoint, even from a training and an early adopter standpoint, made it easier. Frankly, the, the culture at Auctioner, which is hardened by events like Katrina, and other major disasters have really created a mindset of resiliency. You know, those are things that you can draw on when you're communicating with providers and needing them to rapidly change their workflows. And, and then the access to digital programs that we have been developing over the last couple of years because we thought it was a better way to take care of chronic diseases and common chronic diseases. I think so having some preparation, having foresight and vision, and then in the crisis time, drawing on our experience as an organization from prior crises, and then really just falling to the notion that our providers are really caring people who wanted to stay connected to to their patients. That's kind of how it's played out. I think it's a real success story for us. I mean, we're still in phase two in Louisiana and our our primary care clinics are at 100% of their budgeted volumes for the year, both combination in-person visits and in virtual visits. We've quadrupled the number of eligible patients who are on our digital chronic disease programs. And I mentioned the the increase in in telemedicine. So I think all those will have a lasting impact on us and our ability to reach more of these patients who, as you pointed out in your intro, seemed to be both vulnerable to this and are vulnerable to normal other health complications that plague the obese, the diabetic, the hypertensive patients that really are overrepresented in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. David, you mentioned the, the physicians that you had to bring on to this. And as I recall, a lot of these physicians are not employed physicians. They're, they're independent. They're part of your network. And you had said that it was the physician's block that was often what was slowing down the adoption of telehealth in the past. What did you do to try to bring them together so they would bond to the training and adopt quickly? that hopefully will then have some carryover as you get through this and it becomes more of a way of doing business in the future. The 300 providers I talked to you about, those are our employed primary care group. There's another large chunk of primary care doctors who are in our network. There, the problem was a technology platform. It was, at Oxford, we had the technology platform. It was a, it was a little bit more of a bias. I think in, in the community, in many cases, there was no platform. And so we had to actually bring them a telemedicine platform. And, and, and the way we ended up doing it was really interesting. We have a relationship with American Well, a national telemedicine vendor, but they don't have an integration with Epic, uh, our EMR system. But one of our network partners, Lafayette General Health System, a couple hours to the west of New Orleans is a Cerner shop. They also have a relationship with American Well. They've got an integrated uh, platform where benefits and eligibility can be adjudicated so that you can actually offer telemedicine service was we chose to bring their version of their platform to the community physicians versus ours because it was a better model. It was a better platform for community physicians that could stand it up quickly. And there was some angst inside Oxford. I didn't think about it until you just, you just mentioned it. I mean, 
there are those in auction who believe, you know, we don't want to extend non-auctioner capabilities to community providers. We want them on auctioner capabilities. But but the right thing to do for those providers and the, and the, and the quickest way to get them up was to actually go to our, our partner organization and bring their version of telemedicine into the market. So I think that was a success. I think our ability to both internally, our heads around it fairly quickly, and then Lafayette General's willingness and ability to mobilize for training and, and to get that done was probably more important on the community side than the mindset. I think in the community, Auctioner had the ability to hold all of our physicians harmless as their revenues plummeted. We, we've got financial strength and, and, and scale to be able to do that. Our community providers don't have to, those are independent practices who were feeling incredible stress and they needed not only a channel, but a billable channel to stay viable. And that's why it was important for us to get this kind of claims integrated capability into their market because it was important for them to be able to build. We also did a lot of advocacy work on behalf of telemedicine restrictions, telemedicine coverage. We did it at the state and at the federal level and with several of our local payers where we have value-based contracts. And we're able to then go to these partners with not only the technology solution, but also with an expanded set of payment capabilities to support them. And I really do think they appreciate that. I think it was probably one of the most tangible ways that our network created real immediate value to the community physicians. And I think that's going to serve us very well on a variety of fronts as we go forward. Yeah, that's a great description, David. You know, you've talked about you know, multiple partners, obviously the, the physicians out in the community partnered with one of your network hospitals. You were able to change some of the payment mechanisms by working on policy issues, which again, all these components are part of the, uh, part of the ecosystem. And you know, one of the things that we, we also know in ecosystem leadership is that it's really hard for people to step back and say, my answer is the right answer. And you have to do that to get alignment. And you, you mentioned that that was not always easy for some of the people at Auctioner to basically say, yeah, we'll step back and let Lafayette General System lead the way. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those conversations were like and how it got worked through? Well, I won't pretend that there was a lot of drama because there really wasn't. And I think there were so many things happening so quickly. This was one. So it's not like we had a debate that lasted several hours. I, I think at the end of the day, there was an immediate question of whether this was in our long-term strategic interest or not. It helps that we're in the midst of a merger and acquisition with Lafayette General. So our, our business relationship with that system is close and getting closer. And I think that, that helped. At the end of the day, though, what really won the day, and it took about 15 minutes, was just to paint the, the significant needs of our community physicians and to really have those inside who may be on our, our IS or IT team who live the world through a technology lens, just to pause them for one second and tell them about the business pressures that, the frankly, the existential threat that existed to some of our community physicians that they weren't going to be able to stand up a capability to see patients. And I think we don't, we have tremendous leaders who are very fair and compassionate people. And so it didn't take long to frame that conversation in such a way that we were able to move forward. But, but you know, there was, there was a conversation that had to happen. And that, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing that I think some people have speculated, I certainly have, is maybe some good will actually come out of this which is that some things that would have been hard conversations when you're trying to do it for something as esoteric of what's the best way to, to deal with chronic conditions out in these rural communities. So we, we ought to do it because it, it's working and it's integrated. That can sometimes be a long conversation. It just doesn't have the immediacy and the primacy 
that other things often do, but the pandemic actually brought that to the forefront. And, and perhaps that will actually be one of the positive as a result of- It's a great point. But even I've had to have some hard lessons, right? So if you think about my world, you know, uh, as a ambulatory care provider back when I was in practice, at, a, at the largest commercial payer in Louisiana at Blue Cross during my time there, where I was all about trying to reduce cost of healthcare. I was doing everything I could to keep people out of the hospitals. And I get over to Oxford and I run, you know, a value-based care delivery arm of, of our organization. Well, I'm the guy in, in, in our boardroom and I'm the guy in our team, you know, executive team room who's frequently swimming upstream. You know, uh, the hospital operators and, and others view volume reductions in the emergency room as a problem. I view it as a success. But, you know, even I had to pause and say, where would we be today in this pandemic if we had closed hospitals? Like, if I had been purely successful in Louisiana at reducing inpatient utilization by 50% and had reduced the hospital beds in Louisiana by 50%, what would we have done? And so even for me uh, in medicine, you know, I still don't have it all right. It, it's, it's rarely black or white in healthcare. And the lesson for me personally in some ways has been uh, to not get my own blinders and my own biases and not to get too firmly entrenched in my own belief system that I don't envision a pandemic and what we would do in the situation where we needed 3x the number of hospital bids that we would normally do. And I, so I think everyone is learning lessons right now in COVID. Many of them will inure to the benefit of, of the patients we serve and, and the populations, but how we run our business, how we choose to deploy capital, how we do decision-making in a large organization like Oxford will change forever post-COVID. I mean, if you think about it, we've got a fairly centralized command and control structure at Oxford. And, and in many ways that serves us really well. In a pandemic, that doesn't work. We had to decentralize authority into our regions in a, in a major way. And we were able to, to turn things around very quickly by doing that. And, so we're currently giving our, you know, scratching our heads saying like, you know, what, what's the right way to actually operate our business going forward? We were able to do things in three months that typically would have taken us two years. And does it take a pandemic to really cause that? Or is there a fundamental different way to operate our business and to, to think about that? So yeah, I think lessons all around and we could probably spend two or three hours articulating many of them. Yeah, you, you had talked about that as you were doing things, you didn't un really understand what was in front of you. You just had to act, which again is, is, is part of what ecosystem leaders have to do when they're forging innovative solutions. And it's hard to do under normal circumstances, but you, you had to take action here without really knowing exactly what was going to work. Are there things that you did to allow you to take action, but also to be able to change course if that action wasn't producing the outcome that you were expecting or that wasn't uh, quite having the impact that you were looking for? Yeah, I think the best example of that is, is uh, COVID testing, right? So early on, you know, we relied on reference labs. We were, you know, no offense, we were, we were using Mayo. Uh, they were immediately overrun with the oxygen of the world, uh, you know, consuming their testing capabilities. So not only did we not have tests, we had very slow turnaround. And, and we were trying at that early, in those early weeks to really contain the virus. And so the key to containment is early diagnosis. And, and uh, we, we very quickly believed that we were not going to get the level of testing through commercial labs that we were going to need to manage really an epicenter of, of the outbreak. And so very early on, 
we made the decision to bring testing in-house. And I think in retrospect, it was the single most important decisive move we made. And, and fortunately, we had we have an incredible lab and they were able in a weekend to take equipment that's not perfectly configured to run COVID testing and configure it to be able to run COVID testing in-house. We were also very early on able to secure testing capability from Abbott well before others were catching up to the notion that they needed. So we were able to really become uh, the leader in COVID testing in Louisiana. So if you look at today, I think we've done a a little over 1.2 million COVID tests in the state, collectively all sources. Oxner alone's done a quarter of a million of them. Uh, We've done more than LabCorp and Quest combined. and, And I think we weren't sure we would be able to do that accurately. We weren't, but we knew very early that if we could pull it off, it was going to be incredibly advantageous to us. And if you think about the legacy of that decision, we've been the leader at going into underserved communities and doing community testing because of our understanding of the disproportionate impact of, of this virus on underserved communities. The state didn't have the resources or capability to do that. So that became a private sector led function that would only have been possible because Oxford made an early call to, to develop its own testing capabilities. And so we rapidly assessed that what we saw wasn't going to work. And we had some fairly rapid decision-making and, and, and ingenuity that then put us in a very different place, which has really served us well now uh, for the last few months. I mean, you talk about the lab did this, lab did that. that. That says an awful lot about the leaders all the way down to the people who are leading the lab, who are doing the work. What, what is it that you think what is it about being in those leadership roles at Oxner? What, what, what does Oxner do in terms of assuring that you've got folks who can respond in that way? I mean, you mentioned that you've had some practice with things like Katrina, but this is different. So what do you attribute the fact that you've got people who can, can make that kind of a pivot? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't want to underestimate the impact of dealing with multiple hurricanes um, over the last several years. Katrina was obviously the big one, but there have been, you know, almost every other year, significant flood in Baton Rouge in 2016, a biblical flood. I mean, uh, over a hundred years since it had rained that much in this city. And that being in the Gulf Coast, I mean, we do have a culture of always being there for the community. We were the only health system other than maybe one other hospital in New Orleans that stayed open throughout Katrina. So there's this deep connection to the community, deeper than most health systems probably. I mean, every health system would say they, they're committed to the community. But I mean, you know, Oxford is the corporate sponsor of the Saints. The Saints are the treasure of, of New Orleans, right? And, and so having been there through Katrina for the city, having purchased and acquired all the for-profit hospitals that were abandoned during Katrina, having just stood up essentially the city's healthcare infrastructure, we, we do have a, a unique set of leaders who come to Oxford and stay at Oxford because of that connection. So I don't want to, under, I, I, it's not just that, but that's a big deal uh, for us. And we, we certainly take advantage of that. But the second thing is we value and invest in leadership development. We do a very detailed team talent reviews every year. We review every leader in the organization. We obviously have performance evaluations, but we actually do a talent review process that takes a lot of effort and a lot of time and, 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 and we go across the whole organization and we do that for succession planning but we also do that for identifying specific development 
opportunities for people and then matching them to what those are, whether they're sending people to Harvard Business School or, or, or creating a personalized coaching opportunity, bringing you all to, to work with some of our leaders it does take a commitment to cultivate leadership skills. And I've increasingly become aware that the specific leadership capabilities that the healthcare ecosystem calls for are unique. I think, you know, sometimes we believe leadership is leadership, leadership courses are leadership courses. But I do believe when you, when you, when you start thinking about multi-stakeholder engagement and collaboration to drive solutions in a complex environment, there is a unique set of skills there. I think we, we're blessed to have some of those naturally, and I, I, I'm one of them. I wasn't formally trained to do that. I was, that was forged in some way through experiences and through mentoring and, and then through you know, self-learning and good parents, probably. But, but we need more of them. And what's clear is that as successful as we've been, we know we'll be more successful in the future if we have more leaders who, who can do that. So I think Oxford has done a great job in leadership development, but we, we probably have the next version, the next iteration of that to consider. And I think COVID will be a great opportunity for us to think about it. You, you mentioned that you realized that the set of skills to kind of do these cross-sector collaborative solutions is something different than what traditionally has been viewed as good leadership. There's an additional component to it. What, what is it that brought you to that insight? I recognized that when I got to Blue Cross. Um, you know, as a physician specifically, as a physician leader, you know, you're trained not only in the science and the art of medicine, but you're also, you're also trained in personal accountability for the outcomes of your patients. And you are the leader of your team and the buck stops with you. And if there's a bad outcome, that's to you. If there's a good outcome to you, it's, it's very directed by your own knowledge, your own skill, and your own talent. And in healthcare, I think a lot of traditional leaders have their own version of that, even if they're not physicians. If they grow up a hospital operator, they get very good at that, and they're fine with accountability in an operating review, and they can conduct an operating review, and they can identify KPIs, and they can, you know, course correct in that lane. When I got to Blue Cross, I was asked to take an organization that had zero trust with providers in an era of sweeping legislative change with the Affordable Care Act that totally overnight changed the business rules of the insurance industry and to try to bring the two worlds of the provider and the payer together. And it just um, was the first time I ever realized that what I had to do to be successful in that world was dramatically different than what I had to do treating patients and leading a care team. And it's a, the degree of difficulty is substantially higher. The time to solution is substantially longer. The, desi- the need to be patient, the need to negotiate in good faith, the need to, to assume good intent, the need to set a shared vision, the need to make decisions when there aren't roadmaps. Or it, it's just that all, all of that, which speaks to really what needs to happen across healthcare today is all of the types of things that this leadership model that you two uh, have articulated speak to. And so, you know, I've just carried that understanding into my role today, which really sits on the, sits on the edge of provider and payer and employer purchaser and, and in COVID other stakeholders that we, so it's just very difficult, but the reward in this world is significantly greater than the reward when you're working through your own narrow channel, through your own kind of historical perspective and lens. The things that you accomplish 
with that level of collaboration are more impactful and have a more lasting impact and reach more people. So for me, you know, uh, you got to be willing to, to, to kind of dig in and do hard work, but the rewards are, are, are just tremendous. I mean, for me, you know, I, I was able to launch programs at Blue Cross that impact hundreds of thousands of people in Louisiana today. Had I had a 30-year career in medicine, I might have touched 20,000 people. So the impact, but, but, but hard, 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 hard. So anyway, I you know, have a lot of respect for, for leaders who are willing to wade into this space. And I think we need to grow more of them because I think so many of the problems and challenges in healthcare are only going to be solved through this kind of collaborative leadership style. Yeah, we make all the cases for social determinants and the importance of thinking about not just healthcare, but health. And the idea that only a small percentage of the health of a community is based on the health care that they receive. And we kind of do a pause and say, you know, our guess is that many of you out there who went into this business to do something that assured that people had great health care are now sitting back and saying, well, this is not the game I signed up for, this other stuff you were talking about. And, you know, and so we want to recognize that for a lot of people, this is not what they thought they were getting into their career for. You know, I, what I would say to them is what was said to me. So when I was, I was agonizing over this decision of whether to leave practice. I mean, I had a really great practice. One of the things I'm most proud of, and it speaks to how important my practice was to me. In 15 years, I never had one malpractice lawsuit lodged against me. I mean, I was the doctor's doctor. And so to convince me to leave that and go to the insurance industry was just agonizing. And uh, I remember I was at a dinner in New Orleans and I, I won't mention his name because I don't know that he would want me to, but there's a, there's a gentleman who I respect in healthcare who's well-known nationally. He's got a great reputation and I'd gotten to know him in a couple forums. And so I sat down with him after dinner and said, hey, can I talk to you for, for a few minutes? I want to tell you what I'm thinking about. And I told him what the opportunity was. And he, uh, he smiled and he, and, he, and he looked at me and he said, and he said David, you know, do, can we agree, can you and I agree that the healthcare system today doesn't predictably deliver value? It doesn't predictably deliver the right outcomes. It certainly doesn't deliver the right experience and it doesn't deliver it at an affordable price. Do you agree with that? I said, absolutely. Of course I agree with it. And he goes, once you agree with that, you have two choices. You can either be part of the problem or you can be part of the solution. Hey, you went into healthcare for a reason. Healthcare is not working in this country. You can be part of the solution or you can be, continue to be part of the problem. And I think for most of us who went into healthcare, at the end of the day, we wanted to make a difference and so I think this just is a different way. Yeah, the cheese has been moved and the definition of a healthcare system is no longer our hospitals and our clinics. It's the home environment. It's new channels like virtual like that we talked about. It's dealing with social determinants. It's, 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 it's aggregating resources and organizing them in a community. It's advocacy. It's, uh, it's, it's so much more than, than what any of us probably imagined, but it's the only way we're going to make a difference if we want it to be better. So, I mean, it, you know, that's what ultimately got me comfortable doing it. And I would hope that would be what the, uh, the, your, that, your that, that's, that's great. And it's clear if you, if your decision had been to leave practice and then go work in the insurance industry, you would have never done it. You, you left practice for a higher purpose and you just did a great job of articulating what that higher purpose was. And that's, that's what allowed you to give up something you love to something that could even increase the impact that you had uh, on the health of the country. That's great. I appreciate that. Thanks. So Tracy, uh, I've been monopolizing the question time here with David. Um, 
what would you like to, to throw in here before we have to wrap up? Yeah, so, so David, we ask this question to all of our podcast interviewees, and that is, what do you want your legacy to be as a health ecosystem leader? Wow. You know, so I, I grew up in Louisiana. You know, my kids are in Louisiana. My parents are in Louisiana. My brothers and sisters are in Louisiana. It's a sick state. It's a great state. It, it's, the people are incredible. The culture is incredible. The food, the sports, the love for life. I want the legacy to be that, that Louisiana is not 50th. You know, I want it to be 40. We have a saying, you know, we want to be 40 by 30. I don't know, you know, if I'll end my career working just in Louisiana. I mean, we've already started to spill into Mississippi now as a system. But whether I'm here full time for the rest of my career or not, the things that, that I've worked on here, the example that, that, that hopefully I've provided in this state will inspire others to continue to carry that torch. And, you know, that one day I'll look and I'll see that the, the health status of Louisiana is just is different. And I think that's the that's the legacy that I'm looking for. I love that. If every health industry or health ecosystem leader took that as their vision, we would actually not be as low as we are in terms of overall health statistics in the United States. We would be able to move up uh, as, a, as a nation, which would be amazing as well. I, I have nothing else to add. I mean, I could, I could speak to you forever, David. Um, you have so many amazing insights to share and we appreciate your time. You were poignant on target and I think you gave some very good specific examples for folks that are looking to really understand how to take the model and put it into action. So I, I know on behalf of Bob and myself, we thank you so very much for your time and for all that you do actually as a, as a health ecosystem leader. So thank you. Well, thanks for giving me this platform and I really appreciate the work and friendship and, and, and collegiality. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website. Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series and of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.